You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I've titled my message, Kingdom Life. Kingdom Life. A lot of you already know what Matthew chapter 5 is. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Let me say unequivocally that this is the greatest sermon ever preached, ever preached, primarily because it came from the lips of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave this sermon, and it starts in Matthew 7, excuse me, Matthew 5, ends in Matthew 7. It's three chapters, but what it is theologically, it's a condensation of every teaching in the New Testament, and I'd go as far to say every teaching in the Old Testament. It, it is absolutely miraculous. It'd take you 10 or 15 minutes to read, well worth the time. And I think for me, and possibly for you too, why this is so penetrating, the theme of it is entering the kingdom of God, both in heaven and here on earth. You see, the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It's now and not yet. But let me say this, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of God in heaven if you are not a resident of the kingdom of God now on earth. I want you to pay attention to that. Vitally, vitally important. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think this is interesting. You'll notice this. Jesus never addresses salvation. He never tells you how to be saved. But what it is, he shows us what it truly looks like to be saved. He shows us what it truly looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And more importantly, I, I think, at least for me, it shows me where I stand sort of in that process of, of participating in kingdom life. And I say this to say this, if you go through the Sermon on the Mount. Read chapter five through chapter seven. I guarantee you the Spirit of God will show you where you need a little adjustment. Maybe minor, maybe major, he will show you. You cannot read that section of scripture and come on like, got that covered, no worries. No, it's, it's all that. This is especially, I think, in my opinion, true in the first 10 verses, which we call the Beatitudes. Does that sound familiar? The first 10 verses are the Beatitudes, and we'll go through them. Some, I believe rightly, when I read this, I got a smile on my face. It makes so much sense. They've rightly called this the beautiful attitudes or the attitudes we should be. Pragmatically, these are the attitudes we should be. The first four Beatitudes focus on our relationship with God. The last four on our relationship with our fellow man. And some of you Bible students will recognize there's a similarity in the Ten Commandments, isn't there? First are God-focused, second man-focused. There's a lot of similarities. Keep that in your mind. I'll, I'll bring another one up a little bit later. But each of these Beatitudes builds upon each other to this wonderful climax, but they're different. There's a unity here. There's a diversity. There's a unity. And something that I noticed uh, when, in my reading, it's that, the first Beatitudes in chapter three, 
the last beatitude, or verse three, the last is in verse 10, but you notice the reward is the same. It says, your reward is entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now in Hebrew literary style, when you have the same phrase at the beginning of a collection of verses and the last, it binds them together. So this was presented as a unit. It's, it's, it goes in this particular order and style for a real reason. I think that um, if we look at this text, and, and I'll read it here in a second, but if we look at the text, we will see that Jesus' ministry has grown exponentially by this time. If you go back in chapter four, you'll see that our Lord Jesus has been traveling throughout Judea, teaching in the synagogues, healing people by the hundred, healing people by the hundred, News of Jesus, and, and this is crazy. Remember, there, there, there's no email, there's no social media. News of Jesus had traveled to Syria. News of Jesus had traveled to the wilderness well beyond the Jordan River. It was phenomenal. And this is where we pick up in Matthew 5, verse 1 through 10. That's where I'll go. But first, Lord, I pray that while we get into your word, Lord God, number one, that you'd move me out of the way, but secondarily, you would speak to all of us. Father, I pray you would show us a poverty of spirit and where we need to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, one through 10 says exactly this. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's wonderful. So picture this, as Jesus sees this massive crowd following him, he climbs up this mountainside about halfway up, little mountain, but he climbs up couple reasons, so he can address the crowd better and so everyone can hear him and he can speak concisely to everyone. He sits and everyone else stands. In first century, the rabbis, the teacher would always sit and the student would stand. To me, that sounds like a good idea right now until someone else comes up and teaches. But anyway, that's, that, that, that's, that's how they did it back then. Um, what comes out of his mouth next is amazing. But again, I wanna draw your reference to the way God does things. Notice that God spoke from a mountain when he gave the first law, the law of works. It was from Mount Sinai. Now God speaks from a mountain, the law of grace. No mistake there, no mistake. And if you noticed, each of these beatitudes started with a particular word, blessed or blessed. Let me say this, it is so essential we understand what that word means. Not only for the Beatitudes, but for the whole Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is, I, I lo a lot of, I think, well-meaning commentators have, uh, 
have sort of described this word or translate it as happy. In fact, probably some of the Bibles you have have happy there. Not the case at all. You know as well as I do, happy is a subjective state of mind that can change. It's a feeling. Can I say that? Happiness is a feeling. Jesus is not declaring how people feel or describing how people feel. He's making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. He's not describing feelings. He's making an objective statement of what God thinks of them. Pretty important. It's a positive judgment by God that means to be approved of or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves of us. He approves of us. Now, there's no doubt, and you know this, if you're feeling this approval, it brings happiness. No two ways about it. The point I'm making right now is this that the root of the idea of blessed is an awareness of the approval of God, not a passing feeling, not a passing feeling at all. It's a divine pronouncement. Some have rightly called this, and I like this, 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 this blessing or this blessed state of God. They'll call it the smile of God. I like what Max Licato said. He said it was the applause of heaven. Doesn't that set good like you get the applause of heaven? I love that, I just love that. But here's the question for me and for all of you, we need to ask ourselves, do we want God's approval more than anything else? Do we? I'm not talking about do we wanna be happy, that's a legitimate concern. I mean, certainly we wanna be happy. What I'm talking about, do we want God's approval more than anything else? Because when we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else and vice versa. It just doesn't come, you know? You know that, brother. So if we do, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just, for the sake of my sermon, say this is what we all want. We need to start at the beginning. And the beginning is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. There's a reason that our Lord Jesus starts with poverty of spirit because you cannot fulfill the rest of those beatitudes without starting with poverty of spirit. You can't mourn properly without that poverty. You can't truly be meek. You can't hunger and thirst for righteousness without that poverty of spirit and so on. So it goes through the rest of the beatitudes. So what is poverty of spirit? Let's just spend a couple minutes, please. What is poverty of spirit? It doesn't mean that uh, we have no self-worth. Doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that we categorize ourselves as zeros. Not at all. That would not be spiritually accurate, would it? The Lord Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. We are of great worth. We are of great worth. I want you to hear this. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're shy or reserved or gutless. It's not an outward characteristic. It really isn't. I think the best way for me to explain to you what poverty of spirit in this context means, we gotta go back to the Greek and I like that. In the Greek, there's two ways to describe poverty. The first is, let me call this a, a working class poor. 
That's your living day to day. Uh, the wages you make are spent on food and drink for that night. It's a day to day, hand to mouth existence. You're poor. It's not what this is talking about. The other type describes uh, a poverty so deep that it means you live by begging. You live by begging. You're fully dependent on the giving of others. In other words, you have zero means of earning it. You can't, even if you wanted to, you can't. That's the poverty that Jesus is talking about. So a correct translation would be beggarly poor, beggarly poor. When you combine that within the spirit, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. So the sense is blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources, they realize they need help from the outside. There are just no two ways about it. They need help from the outside. You see where I'm going with this. Poverty of spirit denotes uh, that you recognize you're bankrupt. You are spiritually bankrupt. You're aware of your utter sinfulness. You have no moral virtues that would commend you to God. None. I like to go back to uh, some of the great church fathers. A couple hundred years ago, a man named John Wesley, you might be familiar with him, he wrote a commentary on Matthew 5. And for verse 3, listen to how he puts it. I think he hits it spot on. He says, he must have a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin, which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. <laughs> this dude just puts it right there. there. There's no way to understand that. Simply for us, we need to recognize we are so very spiritually needy. I came across this rendering, uh, this one commentator he, he described the verse like this. I'm going to read it because I think it hits it perfectly. He says, blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another reason why we need to start with poverty of spirit is simply this. This world hates poverty of spirit. Everything in this world is against Poverty of spirit. You see, poverty of spirit is the exact opposite of, uh, of where the Lord, well, let me, we have, I think, or what I see, I'll just, I'll give you my opinion. There's this proud, I don't know, selfishness. There's this self-sufficiency. And in our world today, they applaud that. Poverty of spirit is exact opposite. The world will tell you, be self-sufficient. Be strong, be selfish, you know, get as much as you can. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the world has its own beatitudes. Oh, oh, yes, they do. Can I read them to you? I, I made this up, but I think you're going to get it. Um, blessed is the man who's always right. <laughs> blessed is the man who is strong. Blessed is the man who rules. Blessed is the man who's satisfied with himself. Blessed is the man who is rich. Blessed is the man who is popular. Oh yeah, you get pats on the back for that. That's where it's at. Problem is, my opinion again, I think today's men and women are looking for the answers to life within themselves. 
they're going within. It's, it's this exploration of self. You'll find books on it. You'll find speakers making a lot of money talking about the exploration of self. This theologian and author David Wells described, well, I, I think he did a great job explaining what happens when you get into this self-exploration. Let me read what he said to you. It said, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Holiness is replaced by wholeness. Truth replaced by feeling. Our ethics are determined by how we feel about ourselves. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, all that remains is self. Scary spot. But let me say, this self-absorbed world is where we live today in no uncertain terms. Here's the good news, and I love this. To all this, our Lord Jesus answered, blessed or approved by God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember this. This is significant. Do you remember when our Lord started his public ministry, what his first words were? He opened the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he began, began everything with this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He wasn't talking about people with no money. I guarantee he wasn't. This is where it starts. What he's telling us today through the Beatitudes is the same thing he was telling us 2,000 years ago, and it is just as relevant, if not more. The reason that poverty is spirit is so important because it's essential for salvation. And that's why we go back up to Jesus in Isaiah. He came to save. Poverty of spirit is essential for salvation. You cannot know Christ. You cannot know Christ without it. When I first came to salvation or be saved, it wasn't, I came to Jesus and it wasn't on the basis of what I had. It's on the basis of what I didn't have. And it's the same. It's the same today. Here's the illusion. After we've walked with Jesus for a while and we start getting this Christian thing down, uh, we have this, this vision that somehow we're more worthy because of our so-called good works. Do you remember Paul addressed those good works? Paul been walking with the Lord for a bit. Pretty good Christian, I'd say. He says they're filthy rags in the view of God. Filthy rags, not great. So if we're relying on anything, anything to gain a better standing before God outside of Jesus Christ, no good. It's not happening. And let me say this, and this is something I've dealt with more than, uh, more than I'd like to mention. Even after we've come to the Lord and we start struggling with a particular sin or a way of life, a lifestyle that we know is not pleasing to God, our only way is to come and ask the Lord to take it from us. 100% Jesus. Not because we deserve it or have done anything worthy of that. We do not merit his help but he wants to help us. It's because who he is and who we are not. Who he is and who we are not. This is spiritual poverty. Let me go here. I'm gonna to go to Luke 18, verse nine through 14. You can go there with me, but you don't have to. I'm, I'm gonna read it for you 
because I think this is by far the best example of spiritual poverty. It's the, uh, the parable of Pharisee and the tax collector. Listen to this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, I love that. See, the tax collector was expressing spiritual poverty. What was the effect? Salvation. Salvation. See, the ground at the foot of the cross is very, very level. You've heard me say that. No man stands higher than the other because of his good deeds. I got news, guys, we're beggars. We are stinking beggars. You come to the foot of the cross, you offer nothing, nothing. Spiritual, uh, and, and I, I don't wanna beat this too much, I think it's important for all of us. Spiritual poverty is a prerequisite for salvation. Not how many times we come and raise our hands, I wanna be saved. Not how many times you've walked this aisle. Not how many times you've said the sinner's prayer. That's not it, it's not it. So let me be clear for some of you, brothers and sisters. I am saying clearly that it's faith alone that brings you to salvation. It's called solo fide. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that clearly. But listen to this. Spiritual poverty is the posture of faith. It's how it looks. Posture. You look so, how do they stand? That's what faith looks like, spiritual poverty. You see, when we're in that position, it allows God to pour out his grace on those of us that are spiritually bankrupt because only we who are can open up to God and receive his grace and salvation. You see, God is a gentleman. You come to God and you're full of whatever, yourself or good deeds. No, no, God, I'm good. I'm doing okay. God's not gonna force it on you, but you come to God as a beggar, you allow room in your soul for God to pour that blessing out. No two ways about it. And, and, and I know some of you are probably bum with me right now in that this sounds offensive. It sounds harsh, and I apologize for that, but you know what? One of the cruelest things I could ever do was tell you there's another way. That would be cruel. Now, that would be unjust. I believe another reason Jesus started with spiritual poverty is that it is essential for spiritual growth. Essential for spiritual growth. You see, spiritual poverty is certainly something we have, but it's something we continue to learn. That process is called sanctification. We have it, but we continue to learn it, don't we? That's sanctification. We never outgrow the first beatitude. If we do, we've outgrown Christianity. This is what happened to the church in Laodicea. You guys remember that? The Lord rebuked this church. I'm gonna go to Revelation 3, verse 17. You don't have to go there. I'll, I'll read it, but listen to this. This is clearly what the Lord is talking about. 
The Lord says to the church in Laodicea, you say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Just as no one can come to Jesus without spiritual poverty, you cannot continue to grow without it. And it's kind of like I said earlier, it's, it's kind of the same thing. We need to constantly be aware of this spiritual insufficiency because it opens us up to receive the spiritual riches God wants to give us. Until we come to him, it says, you know, God gives good gifts. If you ask him for bread, he's not giving you a stone. But if you say I'm good, you get nothing. You get nothing. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say this. Spiritual maturity, the farther we go in our spiritual maturity, the more we will be aware of our spiritual poverty or bankruptcy. Paul didn't say he was the worst of all sinners for effect, did he? No, it's because he was walking with God, he knew. How about Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in heaven, he recognized his own spiritual poverty, he said, woe is me, I am ruined, I am ruined. This is the progression, this is the trajectory of a healthy Christian that is maturing in the Lord. It's not we're getting better, through Christ we are, but we see the flesh for what it is. Not a great sight, not a great sight. But I wanna emphasize this, there, there's such rewards there. It, the reward is it says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Lord says, yes, if you're spiritually poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in, in, the, in the grammar, in, in the Greek, it has this feeling of it's theirs and theirs alone. It's this private present. It's, it's theirs and no one else's. They will receive this. And it is, again, both now, this reward, it's now, and in the future. See, in Ephesians 2, it says we are seated right now with Christ in the heavenly places. And guess what? That gives us great power, huge power. Right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Because we are poor in spirit and weak, it actually gives us this huge reservoir of power and authority. It doesn't make sense, but it does. Paul said, for when I'm weak, I am strong. I'm gonna end here, I'm, I'm gonna head for home. Um, I wanna conclude by emphasizing the supreme, what I consider the supreme spiritual truth of the first beatitude. Grammatically, because of its prominent position as the very first thing coming out of the Lord's mouth, it declares for all time, forever, that no one can be saved who believes that they bring with them anything to make them more preferable or acceptable to God. And that's actually great news for all of us because self-righteousness and moral pride will damn your soul. I wanna do this. If Larry Scahill and the prayer team could come up I'm gonna read you, it's, it'll only take a couple minutes. It's a true story, but it drives this 
point home. I don't know, maybe you guys are in here, is a prayer team in here or not? If they're not, that's cool. Come on up before I read this story. Um, yeah, I, I just absolutely love this. Uh, in relationship to this poverty of spirit and exactly what God wants to do, would you listen to this? It'll just take a second. Would you listen to this true story? Fortunately, this truth can penetrate the most privilege of hearts as it did to one of England's distinguished judges. The church he attended had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the missions came to the big city church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves, burglars, and so on, but all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one occasion, the pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside the aforementioned jurist, the judge of the High Court of England. After his release, the thief had been converted and became a Christian worker, yet as the judge and the former thief knelt together, neither seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge happened to walk out with the pastor and said, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, yes, but I didn't think that you did. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments when the judge declared, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. The judge then asked, but to whom do you refer? The pastor responded, why, to the conversion of the convict. But I was referring to me. I was thinking myself, explained the judge. Surprised, the pastor replied, you're thinking to yourself, I, I don't understand. Yes, the judge went on. It was natural for the burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime. And when he saw the savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But I, I was taught from the earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion. I went up to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended to judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. It's a greater miracle of his grace. I don't know why that gets me, but that's what it's about. The Lord is calling us, no matter who you are, to his grace. Here's what I want you to do. If you wanna come up and pray for the Lord to give you a deeper sense of your spiritual poverty, come up. If you want prayer, come up and pray with us. If not, I love you guys. Have a great Sunday. You were dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.